0: I deeply and sincerely regret the embarrassment that media reports have caused to President Yudhiyono.
1: Australia faces challenges as the accusations of spying on Indonesia divide the nations. And the surviving members of the Monty Python comedy team reform for one more show.
2: What they did was they made fun of the pomposity of British life and they came up with just wonderful juxtapositional comedy.
1: This is The World, with Tim Stackpool. Thanks for joining us once again. First to Indonesia, which has called a stop to military cooperation and the sharing of intelligence with Australia because of allegations of wiretapping. And while Australia has assured Indonesia it will not spy on its leaders in the future, so far that's not been enough. Al Jazeera's Andrew Thomas reports.
0: The full extent of Indonesia's offence took a few days to emerge. But when it came, the damage was all too clear. Indonesia and Australia's carefully nurtured and strategically important relationship was under review. Following allegations, Canberra had tried to eavesdrop on phone calls, including those of Indonesia's president.
1: I take this case seriously. I believe it is not permitted for other countries to tap officials according to Indonesian law, Australian law, even international law. It violates human rights.
0: The scandal has come to light because of revelations in secret U.S. papers released by fugitive whistleblower Edward Snowden. They indicate the president's wife and senior ministers were also targeted by Australian spy agencies and that Australian embassies across Asia were used for U.S. surveillance operations. On Monday, Indonesia recalled its ambassador to Australia, but the scandal has deepened made worse by what Indonesia views as Australia's less-than-adequate response. Initially, Australian Prime Minister Tony Abbott defended Australia's position. All governments gather information, and all governments know that every other government gathers information. But now he's scrambling to make amends. I deeply and sincerely regret the embarrassment that media reports have caused to President Yudhoyono Uh, who is a very good friend of Australia, Uh, perhaps uh, one of the very best friends that Australia has anywhere in the world. But that statement, not a full explanation nor an apology, has done little to reassure the man Australian spy agencies allegedly targeted.
1: Once again, I demand a formal explanation, an explanation to Indonesia, not to Australia's general public, and what steps will be taken by Australia related to this wiretapping case.
0: Indonesia's intelligence chief says his Australian counterparts have already assured him the Indonesian president's phone will not be tapped. But the suspension of cooperation still stands. Among other things, that halts joint operations to disrupt people smuggling by boat to Australia a signature issue for Australia's Prime Minister. Tony Abbott says that the most important single relationship Australia has is with Indonesia. The fact that that relationship has gone so sour so quickly underscores how seriously offended Indonesia is over this and how critical it is for Australia's government to find a diplomatic way to make amends fast. Andrew Thomas, Al Jazeera.
1: More Greenpeace activists have been freed on bail by courts in St Petersburg in Russia, but one Australian activist from the so-called Arctic 30 has been denied bail. It follows over two months spent in bleak and freezing detention camps with severe abuses of their human rights, say the group. Tom Barton reports from Moscow.
3: Each nervous detainee is pushed inside a human-sized cage in the courtroom and forced to ask the Russian judge for their freedom, even though they consider themselves the ones mistreated. The radio operator on board Greenpeace's Arctic Sunrise, Australian Colin Russell, is being forced to stay in prison, possibly for months. He says all on board the boat had their human rights trampled on.
4: They forcefully took our vessel and uh, pointed guns at us and forced us into uh, one room on the vessel. They did not identify themselves at any time. They cut all our communications so we could not Uh, make a phone call to our lawyers, Um, it was some 112 hours before uh, we were accused of anything, so I say that my human rights have been violated very, very wrongly and badly.
3: The activists had been protesting Russian state energy giant Gazprom's first attempt to drill for oil under Arctic seas, which they consider an environmental disaster waiting to happen. After their seizure, they described being confined 23 hours a day in freezing cells in the northern Russian port of Murmansk. Another activist, Britain Alexandra Harris, says she was kept in appalling conditions by Russian authorities.
5: They were awful.
6: It was cold. It was disgusting. The conditions are better now in St. Petersburg, but it's still prison and still trapped. It's still. Still can't speak to anyone, cut off from the world. It's no fucking.
3: Governments and protesters around the world are outraged by their treatment, the charges of hooliganism against them, and consider their seizure illegal as the ship was in international waters. When it came to the charges against them, Colin Russell was equally disgusted with what he considers a Soviet-style show trial.
4: I haven't done anything wrong. I don't understand uh, the the, uh, the reasons why I'm being detained. Uh, It's. Uh, I've I've done two months of hard time for for nothing. I've done nothing wrong. That's why I disagree. I haven't committed a crime, so I have nothing to run from.
3: British journalist Kieran Byron was covering the protest, but not involved in it. He, too, pointed out what he sees as the absurdity of Russian prosecutors'
4: arguments. To be accused of hooliganism, doing my job as a reporter, is the same as suggesting that every journalist who works in a war zone is a soldier or that the court reporter here today is somehow responsible for the outcome.
3: Most of the now famous Arctic 30 are being granted bail, albeit at a rate of $61,000 each. But despite demands around the world for their release, it's unlikely they will be allowed to leave the country yet, as a possible seven years in one of Russia's notoriously brutal prison colonies could await each of them. This is Tom Barton in Moscow for The World.
1: Still in Moscow, and Iran's Deputy Foreign Minister has been speaking there about the situation in Syria. Hussein Abdullah Kian declared hope for planned peace talks in Geneva, but sharply denounced some of the parties expected to be there even before the summit began. Here's Tom Barton again.
3: Mr Abdullah Kian kept his focus on Syria for most of the press conference and talked up hopes for long-delayed peace talks, already called Geneva 2 and planned this time for mid-December. When it comes to Syria's opposition, he is, unsurprisingly, much more dismissive, expressing doubts they would even be able to send a delegation.
1: (laughs) We understand the Syrian opposition isn't fully ready to take part in the Geneva peace talks.
3: With the opposition to Bashar Assad's forces seen as key to negotiations by most parties, that could prove a fatal blow to the talks. On the subject of the war, Abdullah Khayyana is keen to point out what he says are his country's great efforts to try and bring the conflict to a peaceful resolution and provide humanitarian assistance there. However, he isn't so kind about what he sees as the influence of others in the nearly three-year civil war.
1: Regrettably, some sides are sending militants to Syria and supplying them with weapons.
4: That
3: will strike many observers as rank hypocrisy, doubled by the deputy foreign minister's claim that Iran is only supplying medical and humanitarian aid. Tehran and Moscow, where the press conference was held, have been accused worldwide of illegally supplying masses of weapons, as well as diplomatic cover to Bashar Assad's forces. Russia has vetoed UN resolutions criticising Assad's crackdown, and such things as his army's use of heavy artillery and aerial bombing of built-up civilian areas. Iran has even sent its own military forces into Syria, a claim made widely across the country. Whether talks do materialise in Geneva, This latest broadside from Tehran shows only division over Syria and not the desperately needed attempts at conciliation. This is Tom Barton in Moscow for The World.
1: Community leaders in London's Chinatown say the high number of betting shops opening are devaluing the area, leaving many locals in despair. It's feared the town, in the heart of London's Soho district, is losing its cultural heritage because of the number of betting shop licences being approved. But industry leaders say they are only providing a service because of the high demand. Dan Whitehead has more. At
7: the Chinese Community Centre in London, Chinese heritage and culture is alive and well, with dozens of elderly members meeting here every day. Many remember when restaurants began opening in London's Chinatown, feeding British soldiers in the 1950s who were returning from the Far East and had picked up an appetite for Chinese cuisine. Restaurants remain, but there is concern some are being forced out by an increasing number of betting shops taking over the main street. Nine have opened in the area, with other applications in the pipeline, and community leaders are worried about the effect on locals.
5: Over the years, we heard numerous you know true stories of family being totally destroyed, very hard earned business ruined completely.
7: Christine Yao, who runs the community centre, has written to MPs and london 's Mayor Boris Johnson about her concerns. Some betting shops in Chinatown are open until midnight, welcoming Chinese finishing work in the local restaurants. The industry says it is simply providing a service where there is demand and does not target specific areas. But Dirk Hansen, the chief executive of Gamcare, a charity which offers help to people addicted to gambling, says they are seeing problems within the Chinese community. We've traditionally served the Chinese community, we do it through local partnerships and Chinese language and so on. And through the community leaders that have spoken to us even recently, business leaders, religious leaders, cultural leaders, political leaders, have all said they want to be able to limit uh, the betting shops, but also have very, very strong concerns about the amount of gambling that's going on in the community. Westminster City Council, which is in charge of handing out licences to bookmakers, is investing in research to better understand the impact of multiple betting shops in close proximity. Audrey Lewis is chair of the licensing committee and insists the issue is being tackled.
8: We've actually turned some applications to open later down and then lost on appeal. So it isn't that we haven't been taking it very seriously, but we have to have evidence. Everything we do on licensing has to depend on proper evidence. That's
3: what the law says.
7: Back at the community centre, Christine Yao wants action now and not later, saying the damage is already being done.
5: On a good day if they win some money, fine, you know, everybody happy. On a very bad day when they go home where's the money, you know, for food? Where's the money for the necessary soap, you know, toothpaste, things like that. Of course there's going to be argument. And then create a lot of other problems, and of course, because of that problem, they tend to stay away. Where do they go? Of course, they go to betting shops.
7: But with demand for betting shops so high, the fight between them and the community looks set to continue for some time. This is Dan Whitehead in London, reporting for the world.
1: The arrival of the USS George Washington in the Philippines this last week marked a point where aid to the stricken country did finally seem to be getting through, after days of delays and logistical problems. But even as governments and charities around the world race to play their part, in the US, the large Filipino-American community is also galvanising a relief effort, among them Filipino nurses whose caring vocation means they're especially driven to help. Lorna Shattuck's been to meet some of them in Baltimore.
6: Cheryl and Marie, both nurses, both Filipina, work at the University of Maryland Medical Center. As part of a big Filipino community in Baltimore, they've both heard devastating stories of those caught up in Typhoon Haiyan, including some on a ward in their own workplace.
5: There were two nurses there who have family there, Mm -hmm. and they haven't heard anything.
8: I have have a friend, uh, he's also a nurse in one of the hospitals I work with. Mm. He lost his brother,
6: and his sister-in-law. When Marie saw the first television pictures from Tacloban and the surrounding areas, she says she was struck by just how much help was needed.
5: Food, water, clothes. When I see children walking the streets and they are still wearing the same clothes that they wore when the tragedy hit, it's really very, very heartbreaking.
6: And Cheryl was already thinking about what the survivors would want. I can feel what they're feeling right at this moment. And the one that strikes me so much is
8: if they actually survive from the storm, what are they gonna ha- what, what's going to happen to them now? They're starving, they're crying,
5: they
6: need a lot of help. Both nurses are determined that some of that help will be coming from the University of Maryland Medical Center and planned on getting together some kind of fundraising effort at work. But one step ahead of them was Chief Nursing Officer Lisa Rowan. As she watched the coverage of the typhoon's effects last weekend, she got straight on the phone to the hospital's CEO and quickly made plans. We've established a relief team uh, that is going to look at ways to donate money, food, uh, medical supplies, time, effort, and just really ask them to be creative in any way they can, because many of... The people on the team are from the Philippines. The team of around 20 volunteers will draw on staff from several different departments across the hospital, both Filipino and American, and work alongside the Philippine Nurses Association of Maryland over the coming weeks. For Marie and Cheryl, it's a practical way to send support and love to friends and family back home. Lorna Shadick, Baltimore.
1: A British charity is warning aid agencies and authorities in the Philippines that they must work to combat the increased risks of child trafficking and abuse in the wake of Typhoon Haiyan. World Vision, which operates in 100 countries worldwide, says past disasters have seen an increase in the numbers of children trafficked out of the country to work as prostitutes or in forced labour. They add there is even a risk of adoptions in cases where children have family but have been separated from them. From London, here's Catherine Drew.
8: As rescue and recovery efforts get underway to help the half a million people displaced by Typhoon Haiyan, the focus has been on the immediate needs of the survivors – food, water, shelter, medicine. But one of the first agencies to respond to the disaster, World Vision, which maintains a permanent staff of 600 in the Philippines, is warning that relief agencies must be vigilant against the particular risks to children in the wake of a disaster. Erica Hall is a child protection specialist for the charity. In a disaster like this, children are separated from their families, they may have lost their families and there are great risks of things like trafficking, uh, illegal adoption, um, criminal gangs who are able to operate in the void that exists and exploit or abuse children. World Vision says its experience following the earthquake in Haiti in 2010 highlighted the increased risk of child trafficking into gangs or unsuitable overseas adoptions. However, the charity, which focuses on these risks in Asia and other parts of the world, admits there are few easy answers to keeping children safe. Erica Hall again. I think relief agencies, we do everything we can to keep children safe uh, in particular so setting up safe spaces where they can go and not only get the psychological support they need to deal with the trauma they've been through but to make sure that people are aware of, of them being there of what the concerns are what the risk factors are and just keeping keeping them close. An appeal by Britain's Disaster Emergency Committee, made up of 14 of the biggest UK aid agencies, has already raised millions of pounds. Among those charities is Tearfund. The organisation's head of Asia, Sudhashan Sathya Nathan, says he's pleased with the response, as the road back to normality for the people of the Philippines will be a long one.
1: In the long term, what we really need to think about is the overcoming of the tra- trauma that people have gone through. That will take months and years for people to get through, especially for children. And I think we need to stand alongside these families and communities so that they back, get back on their feet again. And that would take four to five years or longer.
8: Aid agencies say the needs of the people of the Philippines will endure long after the TV cameras have gone. And ensuring support is in place to protect the children of the Philippines as well as dealing with these long-term issues is essential. Catherine Drew, London.
1: This is The World, with Tim Stackpool. Uganda is the top-ranked East African nation in the FIFA rankings entirely because of the success of the country's national team. The local league, however, ranks low within the region and games are barely attended by fans. Leon Senyangi explores why there is a lack of interest in the local league in Uganda.
9: It is March Day in the Uganda Premier League. Two local teams are playing at the 44,000-seater Mandela National Stadium. Barely 200 fans have turned up for this clash. Bigger matches, too, don't attract as many fans. Though football is Uganda's favorite sport, head of the Uganda Premier League, Mojib Kasule, admits the local league is suffering. We used to have uh, violence that was not uh, well-welcoming in terms of attracting new fans and then uh, lack of funds for the clubs, lack of sponsorship. The drop in funds isn't just about ticket prices, but the quality of the game, buttered by poor administration. The authorities' failure to organize the league too has been a problem. Kasole also says the dominance of European football has wiped out interest in the local league. When a fan goes on TV and watches the Premier League and follows Arsenal or Manu or Chelsea, when he goes to his local club, Villa KCC Express, he wants you to match what the Premier League is giving him. He needs to know the information, he needs to have the replica jersey, you know, he needs to see you bring in quality players, he needs to see the, the structure really being there, he needs to see the facilities. So if he doesn't see that, he's not going to waste his time. In downtown Kampala, buzz are crammed full with English Premier League fans watching an English derby far from home. Manchester United is playing Arsenal on a Sunday evening. While the fans are glued to the screens, some here say their local teams have disappointed them. Their local teams here they are so embarrassing end end time. Likewise, it's like now I'm a fan of Arsenal, whereby Arsenal has been playing, has been winning games which are not even expected, so you get more interested. Guys dribble, pass the ball, they position themselves.
7: And like here, people, they, they will play football. It is full of lack of professionalism.
9: Uganda continues to churn out some of the best footballers in the region, regardless of where they first kicked the ball. But until the local league ups its game, it may be a while before even aspiring young footballers have somebody to cheer them on. Leon Senyangay reporting in Kampala. UK.
1: This is the world with Tim Stackpool. And it was confirmed in London this week that the surviving members of Monty Python's Flying Circus are getting back together to mount a new stage show. It'll be the first they've performed together since 1998. For those of us of a certain age, John Cleese, Eric Idle, Michael Palin, Terry Gilliam and Terry Jones redefined comedy along with their now-deceased colleague Graham Chapman. Simon Marks spoke to Martin Lewis, a Hollywood-based humorist and commentator who has produced shows with members of the Monty Python team.
2: Monty Python was a complete breakthrough, uh, first of all in Britain and then the rest of the world in terms of comedy. Uh, it took the, the existing forms of comedy and gave it such a twist, an absurdist twist, if you like, and explored areas of humour that had never really happened, certainly not in, British, uh, in, in, in the British world before. What, what they did was they, um, they made fun of the pomposity of British life um, and they came up with just wonderful juxtapositional uh, uh, comedy. The notion of the world's greatest uh, the, the world's greatest philosophers being soccer players. Um, the, uh, the, the notion that there should be a summarized Proust contest. Um, uh, the notion that a dead parrot might possibly come back to life if you put four million volts of electricity through it. These were just uh, uh, aspects of humor that nobody had explored before. And the impact of Monty Python was considerable.
0: Uh, and they went on to influence a generation of comedians.
2: A generation or more, um, their work started out on television, uh, but then they branched into stage shows, uh, movies, and all the people that followed them uh, in Britain and America were in, uh, completely influenced by the Pythons. And I know this firsthand from conversations with the creators of South Park, uh, who, with whom I worked once on a Monty Python tribute. Uh, I know this from Eddie Izzard, uh, from pretty much every major comedian in the English-speaking world, and probably quite a few outside the English-speaking world, have been influenced by Monty Python.
0: Now, in the decades since Monty Python's Flying Circus uh, was first produced, comedy has changed. Audiences, of course, have changed. Uh, Will they face any challenges, do you think, in reaching younger audiences with their comedy? Will their comedy
2: still seem fresh? Not only will it seem fresh, you will actually have this rare quality called funny. Um, uh, listen, there's always new uh, comedians coming along, and some are, are very good, but I think a general consensus is that uh, television comedy and a lot of movies that are described as hilarious uh, turn out to be not that funny. The Monty Python team were always incredibly inventive. Their, their comedy was not a formula. They did not have a team of 30 writers Uh, putting their shows together, the comedy came from within themselves. And um, uh, in their subsequent uh, solo endeavors, uh, be it Michael Palin's TV shows or John Cleese's movies uh, or Eric Idle's Spamalot show, the humor has continued to entrance audiences, not just the old folks, but the young folks as well. It's very akin to the music of The Beatles. The Beatles' music is timeless. It doesn't matter if you're a first-generation fan with the Beatles or you're a youngster. You like the Beatles. And that is the the, the lesson of Monty Python. I think that's going to be shown again. And
0: is it your expectation, Martin, that we're going to be seeing the classic old stuff done by the Monty Python troupe, albeit now a little bit grey-haired, or do you think we're going to be seeing new original work?
2: I'm fairly sure that there's going to be a mixture um, there's no way that they could possibly go on stage uh, and not do some of the old favourites without being lynched. That's, uh, that, that's a certainty. Um, there's bound to be a desire uh, on behalf of the audience, and I think the Pythons themselves, to revisit some of the classics. But in addition to that, I think it is entirely uh, likely that they will uh, be tempted to come up with some new material. For example, on their 30th anniversary in 1999, uh, they came up with a few new skits. I myself had a hand in putting together something for them, which was, a uh, I mentioned, a South Park tribute to Monty Python, uh, and that was incorporated in the show. They themselves could not resist the temptation to do a couple of skits. So I think there will be a mixture of uh, the golden oldies, so to speak, and uh, uh, possibly a few new a uh, gold old is to come.
1: And with that, that is The World for this week. If you want to learn more about the program, don't forget you can keep in touch by visiting www.theworldradioshow.com where you can connect with our Facebook page and comment on any of the stories raised in the program. The World remains committed to bringing you the issues affecting the people of our planet, either on a mass or individual scale, and we hope to do so with balance and integrity. I'm Tim Stackpole, and on behalf of our contributors right around the world, we look forward to your company next time. Until then, bye-bye for now.